Possible Podcasts. I'm Caleb Woodbridge. And I'm Sweden Dobson. And today we go right back to the very beginning of Doctor Who with An Unearthly Child. The first of our uh, retrospectives looking back at the history of Doctor Who through the ages. And uh, we're going to be going through uh, each of the 11 Doctors. This was supposed to be in January. The idea is to do roughly one a month through to the anniversary uh, in November. But we're running slightly behind schedule. But we'll be catching up soon. So, yes, this is where it began then. Indeed it was. All back in... November 23rd, 1963. Now, I imagine that uh, many of our listeners will have seen this many times, but if you are a new Who fan uh, who has yet to delve into the wonders of classic Who, uh, we'd very much encourage you to do so. And uh, at the moment, we're going to be watching this via Netflix. And if you get a free trial at the moment, not only can you watch their new exclusive House of Cards drama that they've just made, the Kevin Spacey remake, but they've also got quite a lot of uh, classic uh, Doctor Who on there, so that's worth checking out. But also there's the DVDs, and I'm sure there's uh, less reputable corners of the internet where you can watch these things for free, should you be so inclined. But uh, plenty of options. Indeed there is. Um, Yeah, so uh, should we Dive on in and uh, use that as the launching pad for um, uh, discussion. Okay, so if you're listening along at home, press play now. (laughs) It helps to have the volume turned up. One of the things is just how fantastic the original title sequence is. And just within that context of the um, 60s, there's a real futuristic, otherworldly vibe to it. But the whole electronic stuff, mm. and I, I'm sure I've watched documentaries how they did it, but mm. I, I can't precisely remember uh, with the... Um, but yeah, fantastic work by um, the Radiophonic Workshop. Um, because it was by composed by Ron Green and then Delia Derbyshire and the Radiophonic Workshop basically crafted it out of pure electronics. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and how was it? Um, the classic was it key running down a piano string. Oh, that was for. Oh the no, sorry, that's the TARDIS. Sorry, sorry, that's the TARDIS. But yeah, I think it holds up in many ways a lot better than some of the more jazzed up uh, versions that they've... Um... Well, it's interesting. Anything that's not kind of quasi-computer-generated, mm. if it's not that, it tends to look better longer. So, for example, 2001 Space Odyssey still looked pretty good, mm. even with the 
very si- similar kind of title sequence, yeah. but very psychedelic version. It looks a lot better than if they were to try to do a very rudimentary, say, late eighties, early nineties mm. CGI version. Yeah, not um, maybe just because the technology isn't as good. It isn't good enough relatively, but still. And written by Anthony Coburn, and we've had the uh, atmospheric uh, policeman in the London fog shot, and the uh, now we have the police box in the junkyard. So far, completely unexplained that it's humming mysteriously. And, yeah. And, and interestingly, they, they played the full version of the music mm. in the title, which I watched this earlier, and I was like, ah, the middle eight is there. <laughs> it should be in all of them. Not just a few. And Coho still is, which we go back to in remembrance of the Daleks. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yes, because they revisited it. That, that was for the 25th anniversary season. Um, season 26 wasn't it yeah um, now it's interesting because on the one hand it's beginning uh, in a school and so you've kind of got that children's um, show setting in a way but it's them being told from the perspective of the teachers which is oh it, it is uh, this was <laughs> You definitely get, not necessarily with me at these good students, but this is definitely a staff room conversation. <laughs> this one's really good at this, but absolutely terrible. I have, as a side, I have a student who basically sometimes can't add up and seems to shout random noises at me, but then can do algebra. <laughs> it's just really bizarre. Um, interested with Susan being terrible at modern things and good at history and science. It reminds me of my mother at school who was terrible at maths, but brilliant at English and mm. everything else, and they all thought she wasn't trying, and <laughs> she was. Of course, if you were making this today, it would be very much Susan's point of view, with, uh, much more, I think, and then bringing in the um, curious teachers more as a threat. Yeah. I did think much, and I was thinking, this is definitely different, especially because, well, Ian and Barbara are, well, they are quite major, but you know, today it's this is do, do, oh no, well, actually that's interesting because in Rose it's interesting comparing this with Rose hmm. to some extent because there's a, a reboot um, which yeah to start mainly on a well it's interesting because you could consider these as a family type say Rose's yeah. family but Rose is the major character whereas Mickey and Mother who I can't remember her name Jackie Jackie isn't whereas here these are very much kind of more major at least initially Mm. than um, yeah because it's much more of um, like you say they become although to begin with there's all the suspicion and so on more of a family um, and it's that ensemble cast so you've got um, the young uh, Susan as the child and then you've got Ian and Barbara and there's that kind of slight element of love interest that's hinted at occasionally yeah. and um, Ian is the more of the action hero and uh, the, do- the doctor is the dotty old um, eccentric sci- mad scientist figure he's much less of a straightforward hero and the kind of um, the role Ian plays is 
of being the action hero has been merged into the Doctor over time. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll definitely see that later on. Mm. Uh, particularly. But I think it is interesting, though, especially with Rose as well. Rose is obviously human. Yes, yeah. I know. Whereas, so do you reckon... Well, I suppose they could start it with an alien teenager as a main character, mm. but that's not really the way they've gone. No, because the um, the orthodoxy is that um, it works best to have a contemporary companion to act as a identification point for the audience, mm-hmm. um, and you have that in Ian and Barbara. It's interesting that they are more the viewpoint character than um, Susan um, um, the French Revolution because I really like the idea of these time travellers trying to fit in and uh, trying to have this ordinary life and I think um, in a modern context you probably have other school children as the Interested characters rather than teachers, if they were doing it, doing it in a... Yeah, they, they probably would. Mm. Um, it would be like fellow pupils investigating her rather than teachers. Yeah, although I, I do like it that you get a much greater diversity of characters you would yeah. because. Um, I really don't think the orthodoxy need to be true. No. But it always has to be you. I remember it was Claire saying, or our friends were saying, about how you couldn't have... Um, if you have a, a young character in a story or something, he has to solve all his problems himself. You know, you know, it, it, otherwise it wouldn't sell. Mm. You know, you could have, like, the older, wiser character actually making sense. It has to be more like in... Um, the cutting out time bandits his parents know nothing mm. the other characters it's also the young characters and the children or the young teenagers are the ones that actually have the um, um, they have the answers and here we and here we have um, Susan wanting to involve time as the fifth dimension. Yeah. Sorry, a fourth dimension is to, and space is the fifth to calculate some. Um, it just worked quite well. This kind of flashbacky type conversation. Yeah, it's it's, 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 it's an interesting structure. Yeah. So the first episode is is very interesting. I think it does well as the first episode in, in its structure. Um, in a way, I think it's better the fact that you don't actually have Susan's point of view character because she's supposed to be the alien character. Yeah. And you're trying to understand, okay, quite prescient, she thinks that uh, Britain runs on a decimal system. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, you're about um, eight years, seven years too early. Hmm. Because um, it was seven, 70 or 71. Yeah, decimalization, yeah. just doesn't know. So we have a 15-year-old girl who is absolutely brilliant right. at something so an excruciating yeah. of those. There she is. And it's interesting that it's focused on her rather than the Doctor, because in uh, stuff like Rose, it's the Doctor who's the mystery like, being like uh, investigated oh, that's true, by yeah. Rose. She is alone. No, that's true. Because we've not even seen the Doctor yet, and we're uh, ten minutes in. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he's, he's kind of kept... And he was the biggest, presumably the biggest name of the actor as well, wasn't he? Mm. Well, 
well, with William Russell in too, because he'd done um, quite a few things before this, which really covers them. Medieval action. Oh yeah, it was uh, either Robin Hood or King Arthur or something. It was something like that. Yeah, um, they did quite a bit with that. Yeah, um, it's been announced this week, of course, that uh, David Bradley, um, Argus Filch in the Harry Potter films, and Solomon in uh, Dinosaurs and the Spaceship, is to play William Hartnell in the docudrama uh, An Adventure in Space and Time. That. Um, Mark Gatiss is writing for the 50th anniversary so that should be really interesting because just how it came together with uh, Verity Lambert and Sydney Newman and um, Horace Hussain and all the different people working on it there's a really interesting backstory there so it'll be um, oh yeah uh, I'm just slightly dubious of the docudrama format I've never actually seen a docudrama that I'm not sure if I haven't seen a huge amount of them, but it seems to be quite a limiting um, limiting format. You seem to cut out the amount of documentary you could have in and have really poor drama because they're, they're there just to advance the story, as it were, in like a dramatic fashion. So why not write either just do a documentary or do a kind of drama, a full drama version of the story rather, rather than... Well, perhaps I, I get the impression that it's, it's a drama of it. Um, okay, so not, not just like interspersed with, with this is how it was narration. <laughs> no, I don't think that's the, okay. That 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 would be that could be good. Um, and I, and I think it's the kind of thing that suits Mark Gatiss's talents quite well because he's quite good at um, the he, he he likes the historical period stuff and uh, that's kind of uh, something I imagine he'd do quite good. So here's the Doctor, good old uh, William Hartnell himself. No, it was Yale Lock mm. on his TARDIS. <laughs> on his TARDIS door. Now, the big difference is, of course, that he is very much the older man compared to later doctors. Um, I mean, sometimes that's exaggerated, his dodderiness in memory and in caricature. That was only, yeah, it was only later on. Particularly, mm. that he was he was with it with the first couple of seasons. It was particularly in season three. Mm. They started going a bit. Mm. But they were rather than the forties, though mainly. I think. I think Trout was in his forties, wasn't he? Bertrand mm. probably was. Baker was. And then he got younger, of course, with. Um, Pete Davison, yeah, particularly. But it is, it is quite interesting. The doctor just not care, just trying to get them out of the way, and the way he treats other humanoid, human characters in this is somewhat different to how uh, modern who would have ever have a doctor talk to any human character at all. Well, you do occasionally. I mean, you had um, 
uh, Eccleston talking about saving every stupid ape on this planet. Mm. I suppose if that was... You, you sometimes get a bit of spikiness, but that was more Eccleston's, that's where they tried to make him a little bit more edgy again, rather than the... By, by um, Tenants, he's back to... Oh, human beings, you're wonderful, you are, come here and have a hug, because you're so fantastic. Um, as he does in uh, The Impossible Planet. <laughs> Oh, too much eye rolling on my butt. Sorry, it doesn't work on radio. Why won't you help us? I'm not hindering you. If you both want to make fools of yourselves, I suggest you do what you say you do. Go and find a beast. Are you nip off quietly in the other direction? It's out there. There's only one way in and out of this yard. I should be here when you get back. I want to see your faces when you fight to explain away your behavior to a policeman. <laughs> Nevertheless, we're going to find one. <laughs> Come on, Barbara. What are you doing out there? She is in there. Who's the doctor? Barbara. Assumes that he's kidnapped. <laughs> and here we go. The very first TARDIS scene. Again, another piece of classic design. Yeah, with, with the round doors and the doors. Have you ever seen the pilot episode? The pilot first episode? Yeah, he, he did. The doors don't work. They kind of fling open. <laughs> they kind of close and they kind of gradually open at another point during it. Is there any precedence in science fiction prior to this of having something bigger on the inside than the outside? I was having a look at brief history of kind of time travel and um, science fiction stories. Not in. I, I, I don't know if anything in science fiction. The thing it brings to mind is. Um, the wardrobe and the line direction the wardrobe which is bigger on the inside and you then have in um, is it or is it just like a gate in Stargate the wardrobe well um, you have the term bigger in, on the inside applied oh, okay. to it I think either in there when they revisit the idea in um, the last battle where you've also got a stable that's bigger on the inside I think they use that Phrase, um, okay, uh, or something very similar. Um, so that's fantasy. Um, so there's oh, it's, it's, it still gives me chills. Some of the uh, speeches. I always thought that was a, not the best argument. No. <laughs> putting it on television, the uh, skyscraper in a. I can see by your face that you're not certain. You don't understand. <laughs> I know you wouldn't have a mind. <laughs> no. Disdain towards <laughs> Ian yeah. as being uh, obviously yeah. inferior and being ignorant. The point is not that you understand. What is going to happen to you? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite Yeah. yeah. Like, yes. What's going to happen to you? <laughs> what am I going to do to you? You mean it moves? The TARDIS can go anywhere. TARDIS? Oh, here begins the debate. Is it dimension or dimensions? <laughs> Became dimensions later, but then. Um, but also, it's interesting that Susan says she made up the name, but then it gets referred. Um, they get referred to Tardis as generically by the time Yeah, they do. Um, Continuity is never done to strong points. <laughs> 
Well, not let get, get away with that in uh, modern dialogue. And <laughs> the innocent Indian Red Indian saw the train. His savage mind thought it was an illusion. <laughs> now, it's interesting, though, because although you get that, you have... Ah, this is the whole exiles thing. There's a wonderful sense of mystery, because you have no idea where they're from or oh, no. uh, what's going on. Just... No, this is quite well, well put. Okay. Hmm. It's true, every word of it's true. Um, but yeah, the incomprehension here. Now, this is interesting because it does lead into. Because um, it's of this episode is often looked at in isolation, but um, in the next three episodes, as they um, uh, in sort of Stone Age times with the discovery of fire you've got the same theme of technology uh, and things being uh, not understood and it's very much setting up that um, parallel contrast between um, the 20th century encountering the doctor and then them then encountering their paths yeah when watching it did seem to be Definitely, there in a more realistic way of, well, to some extent, of the past, mm. uh, at least <laughs> <laughs> not giggling away. Giggling away by making a noise on the uh, TARDIS console. Which control operates the door? Still think it's all an illusion. I know that free movement in time and space is a one of the great things is just the um, utter conviction with which it's played. It's, uh, everyone's giving it their all, and there's no. Um, there's none of the kind of knowingness that you sometimes get the kind of postmodern irony with modern stuff. Mm. Um, I, I like that it takes its concept completely seriously. It does make it very believable and jewels uh, And again, I like the fact that Hartnell, yeah, pretty much just uh, electrocutes Ian. Mm. <laughs> Because he can and doesn't like him. Who's a protective grandfather? Now, the fact that he's a grandfather is another thing that um, has sometimes proved controversial among fans with various explanations uh, to this. But I think the simplest uh, explanation is the best one. He is the grandfather. I mean, the best. What I would expect the most likely thing is would be that her father died mm. and then he took over younger her parents died or whatever and he took on the responsibility of bringing up his granddaughter mm. that would be the most likely explanation I would say interesting sort of panning out aerial yeah I, I didn't remember this um, it, it kind of implies some kind of take off it's interesting because in um, Tomb of the Cybermen you also get uh, when the TARDIS lands one of the um, archaeological team look I saw something come down over there um, which 
but most of the time when you see it in the past series, you just have it materialised, dematerialised. It's only in the new series that you actually see the TARDIS being flown around. Uh, well, you do have the chase in which it spins. Oh, yeah. It spins around strangely. You do have a few scenes of it spinning around in space and stuff in some stories right. as well, as opposed to the time, the time vortex. I didn't realise it made so much of the first dematerialisation mm. thing, which was the concoction of a title sequence and seemingly, um, what were they? The kind of whirlwind type things. I was thinking even at this time, time travel stories weren't that... There weren't that huge amount of them. I mean, obviously there was H.G. Wells' Time Machine. Mm. But in the popular consciousness, it seemed to be a 60s onwards thing. You had the aliens, obviously came big in the 50s. After the whole Roswell thing, and you had all the um, invasions, like the body snatchers and stuff. But... um, Time travel is a major concept, mm. even though it is a major concept, it isn't really integral to any of the, th- the th- theme mm. or anything, well, of how it really works. But even on that level, it's not really... Um, oh, this is a slightly annoying thing about Netflix, is that it um, jumps, um, it doesn't play the entire of the credits. It seems to have missed the title sequence of episode two. Oh well, we're at the start of the Cave of Skulls, so if you're watching along, jump forward to the credit written by Anthony Coburn, that's where we are now. There's no on the, um, you would have noticed in the credits if you watched them, it was um, David Whittaker, the, oh, writer, yes. the writer of many, many target novelizations, a story editor, mm. back on the first... Now, it's interesting, because um, the story of um, how Ian and Barbara met the Doctor got told twice in novelisation form, because um, when um, David Whittaker novelised the Dalek story, Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks, to give it its full title, he began with a different version of how Ian and Barbara uh, followed Susan and stumbled on there but in that um, I think Barbara was a private tutor and Ian was a um, scientist who just happened to break down on Barnes Common where they uh, discovered the TARDIS or something it also introduced the Doctor's everlasting matches uh, which he had and stuff but um, it was a different version of events because they brought out just three they novelised that um, the Crusaders and the Zabi was their first three of the novelisation so they wanted to give a proper introduction um, and then Terran Sticks um, novelised um, an unearthly child as well so Compared to two contradictory ones. So here we have the fire making. Just get a bit of pressure to keep rubbing that bone all day. Trying to make fire, just hurting your hands. That's pretty much. 
my father will give me to him. No, I'm very much not a anthropologist, so I've no idea how inaccurate or accurate this is. Um, but it seems very a bit kind of cartoon caveman to me. It, it really does. I mean, unfortunately, I, I like the first episode quite a lot. It, even though thematically it's reasonably interesting to some extent really doesn't isn't that great uh, the, the next three episodes although it is interesting as a counterpoint to modern who um, and what happens which we'll get mm. on to later because the idea of the series was to be educational and to alternate between history and the future mm-hmm. uh, and for the future to be scientifically educational to impart scientific concepts to young discerning minds and for history to inform and um, edify in that very Raytheon BBC way uh, about the events of history and um, but then the Daleks came along in the second story and were a monster hit in every sense of the word much to Sidney Newman's fury and it um, took on a life of its own with the um, aliens and monsters becoming and the adventure becoming uh, an increasingly important part of it it is, although it still, still has significant historical, significant mm. amount of historical stories up until Trout, really. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I do really like the historical stories. There's some really good, good ones, like the Aztecs is really interesting and intelligent, just about uh, the whole issue of trying to change a culture. Um, what concrete evidence would satisfy you? Hmm? I just open the door, Dr. Foreman. Eh? Dr. Who? What are you talking about? Yes, I'm so sure. Yes, I'm not going to open the door. He's Dr. Foreman. Yes, I know. Are you going to open the door? No. You see? Not until I'm quite sure it's safe to do so. Well, the early Dr. Who's, the historical ones, there was, I don't know, I think my mum used to read them, there was lots of kind of children's historical story books hmm. uh, and things I can't remember precisely what they are but Doctor Who's kind of out of the tradition of those specifically with the, the historical ones yeah it wasn't necessarily entirely historically accurate but it was tried to at least be like a children's version of a historical novel to some extent it's, and, it, and it's a good device for making it fun and interesting to have modern characters put into those situations that are under the and that gives them that perspective and knowledge of the events that um, even without chucking uh, aliens into it as modern Doctor Who always does if it does anything historical um, is to have that science fiction element and to have that interest there and I, I really think that the modern series underestimates just how much um, oh this is another great speech Bird squealing in the alien sky. Um, he he does like his uh, his speeches where he looks skew. And, yeah. It's all quite theatrical. Um, 
particularly a moment coming up when he's saying he's lost something, it's like a uh, a very short soliloquy to, to just to the audience. Because hmm. uh, the way they filmed this was to rehearse it um, in the week and then record it on the Friday, sort of straight through. They didn't. Um, they could afford to do much in the way of editing because there was three static cameras. Hmm. Um, if if a take really went badly, they'd um, they um, could swear loudly and then they'd have to redo it. But they'd get in a lot of trouble for doing that. Hmm. It's nice that you can see straight out the doors. That's something they've returned to in um, hmm. modern Who. It, there were a lot of times where you just get a black void. Uh, mm. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, modern who underestimates just the interest of um, plonking um, modern day characters in different historical situations. There's plenty of adventure and interest that you can have with that that you couldn't do from a straight historical drama um, that you can do the, uh, just with the concept of time travellers mm. and I think the idea that you always have to add in um, another science fiction element so aliens trying to take over the world or whatever is um, of course that's fun to do and it's legitimate to do some of the time but I think uh, there's no reason to have to do that every time. There's other stories you can tell that are just oh, as yeah. exciting and as interesting. And there's a vast underestimation of what people will watch and enjoy mm. and engage with. On a slightly different point, um, I remember. Did you ever see the trailer for? Was it the, the guard? The guard? The owls of Gahu or the? Guardians or something or I think Zach oh, Snyder's involved with it yeah CGI yeah and, and at the beginning it's like oh this is quite good the trailer it's like owls in war and it's like oh this is good this is like a children's angle and it's kind of war stories but with owls it's like oh that's quite good and then you have this stupid child owl in it or coming of age thing it's just like oh get rid of it it's perfectly for owls killing each other <laughs> you know because you can do it could, that it could be watership down with owls <laughs> yeah pretty much Tra- completely traumatising well, it have to be but, the thing, but that's slightly different because it's not necessarily cute and cuddly and mm. there's not the humans attacking these owls attacking each of them and so it's not you haven't got that kind of over I just thought you could do loads of stories with like younger uh, children early teens you do just have animals. You only need the one device which gets them in. Then you can do whatever you want to. You don't need to keep throwing other devices in because you don't think that they will engage with them. So I got really annoyed because I thought this is actually quite good. No, it's not. It's awful. It's interesting. Do you think if they were to... Completely reboot Doctor Who, completely, 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 rather than what we did. The um, I don't think this did they spend as much time in the um, disbelief of time travel and of um, kind of not generally. I didn't think they did because I I I think um, coming back to the conviction with which they respond to the situation, I I really like that they 
take their time over that. I don't know. Because they seem to, to brush over it quite a Maybe because they just think everyone who watched it so kind of time travel savvy that yeah. this, this isn't really that, you know, difficult mm. a concept to, to comprehend. Because um, I think... Um, <laughs> it was interesting that uh, Hartnell was about to light up his pipe. That's something else that uh, <laughs> the Doctor would never do today. Oh, he should. He should. That'd be awesome. Uh, oh, even was it smoking is cool, kids. <laughs> Especially pipes. <laughs> it's like was it, was it Ian McNeese who played um, Churchill? Wasn't yeah, he? and had to have the CGI cigar. Oh yeah, have you heard about how um, they're trying to get the Welsh Assembly to give um, permission for um, stuff filmed in Wales to use cigarettes in the workplace because at the moment they're forbidden from doing so so they were saying like all the stuff they make in BBC down in the bay casualty and stuff casualty wanted to do a kind of anti-smoking storyline where someone's smoking and gets lung cancer and sort of something like that or whatever some fairly simple morality tale um uh, but they they couldn't um, actually film this person smoking because they're not allowed to under um, smoking in the workplace regulations. Um, and was going before the assembly to debate whether they should have a special exemption or you know, saying, well, we can't afford to CGI all these <laughs> cigarettes. <laughs> Yeah, as you're saying before, the technology thing and all trying to get to fire back. But interestingly, they seem to have had fire at some point in the past. Yeah. But somehow the great leader of the past who brought fire is dead. And they're fighting between each other to who to who in fact will bring fire and lead the tribe. Um. Yeah, and again, there's that quite stagey thing there because it was very, it was almost like like. Oh yeah, well, it was all very theatrical. The early stuff until they started editing things afterwards. Yeah. Orb have any precedence in any mythology that we know of, or is it entirely fictional? I have no idea. What was Orb? I imagine that's the sun. Oh, yeah. That would make sense. So, yes, then. I mean, it's a fairly obviously thing to worship if you don't know. Yeah, yeah, sure, they always did. Strange tree. They are quite savage-like, aren't they? Which is interesting. Especially because later on you have the savages, which in a way is a complete inversion of this. Mm. Because the whole point is the technological advance are kind of living and off the the kind of most of the population. Mm. 
Apparently that was going to be called the White Savages at one point, but they dropped white. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a different world back then. <laughs> That's always an interesting historical note watching Doctor Who through the ages, what they could, some things that they did do then, yeah. and then they wouldn't be allowed to do now. I, 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 I think that's uh, one of the great well, things about watching Doctor Who is that you can see the whole evolution of um, television technique and technology. Mm. Um, and uh, it's just gone from like um, black and white and then to colour and um, new techniques like uh, good old CSO yeah. colour separation overlay. Yeah. Kind of primitive. Um, green screen type technology and um, then getting into the first video effects in uh, the late 70s and early 80s with their badly lined up ray guns <laughs> and then and also the change in story styles and human things and stuff of course Operation Overlay I think there was a oh, the green there was like a yellow screen some of them used it quite sophisticated because hmm. they used it in, the, in Hitchcock's The Birds which was made in like 1964 I think yeah and that's really quite impressive hmm. you you can't really tell and they've got like painted um, horizons and things hmm. which does who makes yourself but notably in the um, Aztecs I remember it's mine. Just an old man in strange skits. Again, you're right. It is much more of an ensemble cast, even with the um, the savage one, a better phrase, would um, are given decent amount of screen time where the doctor is, you know, locked out. Yeah. Will my father listen to a woman? Is this? In um, Doctor Who magazine, they did their time team feature where they watch who. Oh, where are they up to now? Uh, I don't know. Um, but uh, I think they, 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 they did all the classic Doctor Who and now they're just a few years behind with um, New Who. What are they going to do when they catch up? <laughs> well, I think they're pacing it now so that they're a, um, they keep a sort of safe distance behind and they've also, it's not the original people still going. They changed it over when they got to New Who. So. But what were you saying about? Uh, but they uh, kept count of one or more regulars incarcerated, one or more regulars um, rendered unconscious, um, deaths on screen, and so on. Knocking out was always the great thing. It's like they needed a day, like a week off, so you'd knock them out for an episode. Because they made this all the year round back then. How many episodes are in the first season? It was like forty-two episodes. Hmm. It was like ten years of. I think I counted. It was like forty-two. Like ten weeks of the year it wasn't on. Yeah. And it, yeah, it was like rehearse, record, rehearse, record, re- like constant. Yeah. So if if an actor wanted a week off, they'd just have to um, write them out for. Yeah, the, the, the sensorized Barbara just gets sent to the spaceship. Mm. <laughs> just wanted to get the weeks off. 
It's like how they make soaps the, today. I'll do them. Um, um, they go away somewhere for a bit. Well, um, when with with the soaps, they have to keep track of um, which which actors are available, like if anyone's off and stuff. But also in terms of filming, because they have to film stuff simultaneously to turn out uh, five or six episodes a week. Yeah, they have crazy. to. Um, just the logistics of keeping track of which actors can be in scenes together. It's like um, an amazing amount of work and coordination. So, the most impressive thing about so yeah, the, the coordination. Well, I mean, it's easy to slur it, slope, slopes, but a lot, yeah, of, a lot of the um, reasons for uh, a lot of the perhaps weaknesses of the work things that come just from the structure of how they're yeah. produced to be producing that much television so quick oh yeah you're not going so to be making Shakespeare <laughs> well Shakespeare knocked out quite quickly himself though. yeah <laughs> well there's an that. argument that if Shakespeare were alive today he'd be a soap opera writer it's like I didn't oh no, 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 not as highbrow as that um I don't thinking as like a more mainstream David Simon producing sorry Simon David not David is it which way around is it I can't remember the yeah. wire writer oh right R- writing you know TV serials over quite a lot of them with his own kind of independent creation mm. oh it's not really it's just uh, his own historical historical um, theatre mm. really um well, it's interesting how many of Shakespeare's plays are remakes, because um, basically he uh, often did adapt um, existing stories and historical events and stuff. So. Oh yeah, because apparently Macbeth was quite a decent king. Hmm. <laughs> nah, nah, not, not in Shakespeare's hands. <laughs> What's fun is um, when I was studying. This is really going off on the tangent. Hey, why not? <laughs> um, why not? Medieval literature. This is what you tuned in for. Your <laughs> discussions of medieval literature. <laughs> um, but in uh, a Midsummer Night Dream, you've got uh, the story of um, the, the actors put on of uh, Pyramus and Thisbe, I think it is, in uh, the hole in the wall, and then. Falling in love. Well, that was a medieval play that was well known and popular, and he he's just sending it up, and it's really actually quite a funny parody when you know the original story and know what he's uh, spoofing with his play within the play. Mm. Now, it's all good here that. Um, We've talked about how these are like savages, and in terms of their portrayal of them, whether there's something of that it it's set in the past, but sort of seeing them as inferior. Because in terms of this being, when's this supposed to be set? Hundred thousand BC. Okay. Was the, that was the old. Well, it was the alternative titles you had: an unearthly child, the tribe of gum, 
and 100,000 BC were mm. three working titles, I think, they had, and then went with an unearthly child. Yeah, but um, whether it's being... Because um, that's still relatively recent in um, human history and development, so whether they'd be uh, that, that much different... I mean, obviously, they wouldn't have the technology but having them all speaking uh, in the yeah kind of guttural because um, all, all, all the characters all the savage characters all have like monosyllabic names so. yeah all, all dirty and wearing skins whether it's a bit um, yeah feeding into that kind of narrative of the savage which is really Unjustified. Yeah. Some nice skills there. <laughs> as well as notice, noticing, as well, is that they um, did the uh, credit sequence over an image mm. and then faded out to the title, uh, faded to black, and then put the. Um, and also the have the title for the next episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you had story titles up until. Actually, I think it was The Savages. I think. No, it wasn't, it? Sto- story titles definitely for the first two seasons without mm. yeah, too much difficulty oh we're on to the third episode now yeah <laughs> just so, so you know and we have the implication that they uh, smash people's skills mm. um, she's actually quite well you, you don't really get that in this work kind of anatomical detail as it mm. were in modern who's that they are smashing skulls in the same way. I mean, you have a very kind of, you know, dark, I'll be lazy, aesthetic to some extent. But, in a way, this is a bit, bit more sinister. Yeah, I mean, because the chattering skulls at the end of, um, in the wedding of River Song, it's like lots of skulls, but it's much more just, uh, cartoony. Cartoon gothicism rather than. It's more eerie, but the music as well is mm. clearly massively different, but does set the tone. I think that's. Is that an oboe? I think. They used a lot of woodwind. The Forest of Fear. Oh, the classic noun of noun. Yeah. Noun of something. There's something of something. There's something of something. Of fear as well for bonus points. Oh yeah, hand thereof. But yeah, you, you got used to woodwind very low, kind of quite sparse, which fit which fits well really with the whole um, kind of hundred thousand BC set periodist. You don't want Murray Gold with his choir at this point. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really the lush kind of orchestral soundtrack. Really fits. And you've got the um, little tinkly, kind of slightly more radiophonic style. Um, I'm sure someone must have gone through and edited um, some classic Q scenes to put Murray Gold music on top of them. If you've done that, send us your YouTube link and we'll. Uh, uh, post it to uh, Facebook and Twitter pages. <laughs> but changing the, mu- the soundtrack, uh, the music, something changes things massively. It was interesting. It was in the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, 
and they had the sequence of Independence Day when the, when the spaceship comes down and you could mess around on it to change the soundtrack or guess which one the actual one was. Hmm. And then one of them, they, they played... Um, I think Holst's Mars was there, obviously kind of fit reasonably well. Obviously, I knew it was Holst, so it wasn't the actual music. Hmm. And one of them was... Oh, was it, I don't know if it's uh, Gabrielle's Oboe from The Mission, which is kind of famous area anyone Marconi was. But it made it sound as though this kind of great... Uh, salvation of mankind had come down mm. to um, because of that music being played even though the editing and everything was absolutely identical it was mm. all the same but because the music changed you had a completely different idea of what was happening I thought that this great saviour in this huge space would come <laughs> because they changed the music um one of the things I love in that is how you've got the um, people waving, hey, welcome aliens! <laughs> Big um, laser or whatever it is, weapon opens up, blasts the face. You're trying to help me. I never once thought you were afraid. Which, of course, has been referenced in things like uh, the Christmas invasion with the um, Zikorak spaceship over London and the shadow falling over the London landmarks. And here, here again, you know, with, with, with the Doctor, who isn't really the most um, pleasant of individuals, they're surprised mm. that he actually started to help them yeah. last when we've hit episode three. Here we are in episode three, aren't we? Yeah. Um, I think this was... Um, one of the last things, um, I think the only time that Doctor Who filmed in the Lime Tree Studios, some of the older ones, before oh, right. the, um, most of Classic Who was in BBC Television Centre, yeah. which is now defunct and sold off. Yeah, it has. Um, Broadcasting House. Will not make fire. Yeah, I, mean, I think. Um, but apparently uh, they had all this sand and they had all these um, uh, supposed skins and stuff, but they got full of fleas, which Aww. was rather unpleasant for the um, Pro-technology seems to be a very pro, at least in this very pro-technology mm. um, show. Um, yeah, there's this sixties um, uh, optimism to some extent, but also the dystopian side. Like mm-hmm. next week, because with the Daleks, you've got the post-nuclear. Um, it's even in this because they always say, "What's the radiation level?" They always check. Also, take the guy counter with me. Mm. The, the guy counter is always there. Yeah, because of radiation and things always. Because with the Dalek story, um, it's um, it's very easy for it to feel quite fairy tale of the world uh, now. But of course, this is just after Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, the idea for um, uh, survivors in a astrean nuclear wilderness um, with mutants all around was a very real fear of uh, what humanity's future could be uh, very shortly. So, well, yeah, because in the sixties you have these the early optimism of the sixties, and then so it gets so so it gets more um, 
dystopian when it hit the seventies when everyone's just downbeat. <laughs> in the main. Um, but in, in the context of fire, because it's clearly a good thing that they have fire. Yeah. Um, even though the old woman, the old woman wants to release them to get them away, so they don't give them fire. It is, it is though, even though thematically it's quite interesting, it's a bit dull. Yeah. <laughs> the, the way it's, the way it all kind of, they, they are pretty cardboard, cardboard characters, uh, knocking about. We've got fire. No, we don't. Yeah, fire. And it's like, hmm. Now, um, one of the things with, um, classic who is that obviously it is very dated by now mm-hmm. it's in style and in the way it's shot and technology and everything um, and David Yates put forward the idea of rebooting um, Doctor Who as in movies which Stephen Moffat shut down but I don't actually think that's a bad idea because I think that um, there's lots of classic Who stories that most people wouldn't go and watch out of anything except historical interest, as it were, um, that would be worth putting a modern spin on. And if you were doing a f- um, films of Doctor Who, it would make an awful lot of sense to be able to um, do them independently of the TV series. Um, I don't think that would harm the things at all I think I think um, just as you've had different versions of um, uh, Sherlock Holmes you've had Moffat's one and one in the cinemas and stuff I think Doctor Who is big enough uh, and well known enough and popular enough to be able to sustain more than one version of it at the same time and this was the case when it was off the air with um uh, big finish and the novels and the comics all doing their own things all telling their own storylines and um, I think the idea that you have to have one grand narrative and everything has to fit into that is somewhat misguided because mm. I think you could um, I mean, of course, they remade um, the Daleks as um, the movie, 60s movie with Peter Cushing and the Dalek invasion of it. But, um, yeah, I mean, they, they could, yeah, I mean, they could base it as a remake for a film, but my general thing on remakes when it comes to is they generally do them worse. <laughs> um, but, I'd have to think about which Doctor Who ones which could have been successful well the, the obvious one which could have been successful was it was a trial of a Time Lord but they wouldn't touch something with a barge <laughs> yeah. um, conceptually it's quite interesting it, just, it was just terrible yeah. the way they executed it I mean that's the best way to go about remakes something which could have worked but didn't mm. rather than going for easy oh this one works in the past let's do it again 
the yeah. fact that there's no point. Now, something, something like Doctor Who and the Web Planet would be great uh, for that because it's like a full alien world and if you had a movie budget you'd be able to do something like that. But to take something that's perhaps um, story-wise a bit wonky <laughs> and a bit, a bit shaky but take, take some of the ideas, take um, the world and build a stronger story yeah. around it. It would need to be a remake, but perhaps a return to uh, that planet, which is a nice connection for the fans, but doing your own sort of Avatar scale type <laughs> thing with it, but with a better story than Avatar, which isn't hard. Or a more original story. It's it's obvious, but it's very different to modern day. The um, they would never uh, write the female characters in the way mm. they do today. Even Barbara, who is clearly a interesting kind of character in her own right, still responds quite nervously to things in shadows and kind of uh, potential conflict. Whereas today's have you have to have the spunky young female who is quite happy with action and violence and things. Oh, screaming. Yeah, screaming is a bit annoying. Um, I don't understand why she's upset. This seems to be a, a carcass of an animal. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit odd. But, but just, just in the way that the, the characters have changed, uh, they wouldn't, they don't suppose it was demeaning or something if you had the female characters acting like this in a modern drama. Well, not in modern drama, necessarily, but the same Doctor Who in a similar... Hmm. I mean, you, you certainly could to some extent in other ones, but the way in which yeah. the roles have evolved... It's very much the strong female who's um, a uh, counterpoint to the Doctor who can hold... hold uh, strong characters who can hold their own with him. Mm-hmm. Whereas here it's Ian pretty much who does that. Hmm. Instead. I do think that the, although the, um, uh, these three episodes aren't so good. The first episode is just such gets everything so right just in laying the foundation for the show. I think in terms of why um, Doctor Who's lasted so long, just getting so many elements of the format so right, just having um, uh, just from the theme music to the mystery around the main characters to the idea of travel through time and space and I guess the, the other key developments are the introduction of the dialogues it's sort of becoming that monsters and um, adventure show more and then the concept of regeneration um, so that it can keep renewing itself indefinitely by recasting the actor just um, yeah. no no definitely just set some things right I was thinking you know if you were to do 
if you could do it again, you know, how would you hmm, discuss it so far, but how would you set it up? How would you bring the elements in? Hmm. Um, it does. Because you've got the mystery of who they are, they're wandering from, they're exiled, and why are they exiled? They have a machine that's bigger on the inside of the outside, they go anywhere, anytime in space. Mm. And of course, you, you've got your humanoid point of view characters. Well, that's what's interesting as well, is that Susan, who you consider the classic type of companion, well, as we, later find, well, as we find out later, is a gap mm. Rather than a human, he's actually humanoid. That's not Earth. Earth-based human, which again goes against. Um, it goes against um, later orthodoxy when it comes to that. Part of what's brilliant there is like fed up of trying to help them just to get out. Hmm. Get out of the place, and Barbara says they're, they're human. Yeah, uh, they've been the conscience. You're trying to say that everything you do is reasonable, and everything I do is inhuman. But I'm afraid your judgments are faultless, right? Not mine. Haven't you realised that these two people can follow us, or that any of these people can follow us? The whole tribe might descend upon us at any moment. The tribe is asleep. And what about your woman? Who cut our bonds? Hmm? You understand? Hmm? Is it, I don't think there's any explanation of how they speak. The language right. of translation, or oh no, it's just assumed yeah. that they were. It, it was only in Mask of uh, um, Dragora that, that you get a Mask of passing reference to the Time Lord gift. That's a share of but if you have to translate, it'd just be hard work, really. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd love for um, the Doctor to muck around with the translation settings on the TARDIS uh, with his sonic screwdriver. So suddenly you had um, the characters, um, you'd hear them speaking the language that they're supposed to be speaking and having the main characters, so the Doctor and Companions talking at it's like subtitles. Uh, oh, how are we speaking this language? <laughs> Just have some fun with that if you... Or translate into um, some dialect or something. So have, have the Doctor... Um, Trans- oh. <laughs> you could have him sort of um, uh, among um, uh, coming up to youth on the youth on the street, and the child is trying to translate him into youth, and it coming out all wrong, and him going, "No, no, I really need to turn down the translation settings on this." <laughs> but like the Huda man, I'm never saying that again. <laughs> She doesn't understand, Susan. She's jealous of you. You understand what you are doing. You are like a, like a mother with a child. Why do you not care? How can we explain to her? She doesn't understand. Yeah, very much seems to, with a wig interpretation of history, this we chronological, yeah, the idea of progress and. In return, 
Because it seems to you genuinely be kind of a progress story because of all the time travel is supposed to be good and fire is supposed to be good. Mm. But you still get that in later kind of quote unquote more postmodern stuff. But at the same time, try to reject the, the grand narrative at the same time. Mm. Um, at least it seems to have a foundation for its uh, belief. Um, oh, here we go. Is this what I think it is? No. Is this one to the doctor? Yeah, it is. Oh no. The doctor. Trying to kill him. Move his infamous rock that he's about to. Yeah, yeah, that is brilliant. It's like, oh, I'd love it if if um, Matt Smith attempted this at some point. <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, he's, he's really quite a um, devious and. Um, a moral character to begin with like you have the whole way he manipulates everyone in the Daleks as well by um, sabotaging the fluid links to get his way oh, I'm going to have to go down and uh, get some things to start up okay but yeah there's very much a development in the Doctor's character because by the time you get to something like um the Dalek master plan. He's happy to go uh, gallivanting off around the place on this big quest to um, defeat the Daleks at all costs um, without any um, hesitation or thought about it. It's much more playing the straight action for um, the, the hero. He's here to save the day type thing, whereas uh, to begin with, his concern is to protect Susan and protect himself, basically, and to one day get back. Another thing that I really like in uh, early Who is the Doctor's lack of control of the TARDIS. Oh yeah, and yeah. It takes them um, ages to get back to modern day Earth. It's the whole thing of is that he can't control the TARDIS properly. So it's like um, trying to get Ian and Barbara back to their home time, uh-huh. and so they don't know where they're going to end up. And it's just much more of a adventure travel sense of travel to it in that way mm. and the idea that they're wanderers as well they're not just looking out for a good time they are exiled they are investigating as they go but they have no fixed abode but, but they seem to be sad that they have no fixed abode yeah well. it's, it's not just a case of, oh I'm happy of being the uh, intergalactic gypsy yeah, the, the idea that they're on the move because it's too dangerous for them to be discovered. Mm. Um, came to freedom. He's never, well, Trout in here, he's very wary of bringing the Time Lords in mm. at all because he's had to go back. Yeah. Um, oh, of the Time Lords and the War Game, Burn Horsfall died recently. Mm, yeah, that's sad news. He was, um, Chancellor Goff, probably most famously, mm. in Deadly Assassin. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the sad, the, the sad things with Doctor Who having been going for so long is that, um, uh, inevitably, you have all of the people who starred in the original series gradually passing away. Well, Liam Russell and um, Caroline Ford are still yeah still with us. 
Russell's in his late 80s now, he must be. Oh dear. Yeah. He's looking cross. <laughs> the fire maker. Again, doing the same thing with the credits, just fading out from the image. It might be interesting, I don't, I've not read any much acting at all, but it'd be interesting to compare someone who's been in older television and um, more modern. To be fair, older television is probably more like theatre. Uh, to some extent, because yeah. you, because you're not stopping, you're conti- you're continually doing it. You don't have to stop and do a scene again, and, as if from cold. Yeah. Okay, so here we are. The fourth episode. Fourth episode now. Uh, uh, waiting. And even though he's interested about the TARDIS and, and time and travelling around, there's been a point I made before, time isn't really a huge... Um, um, it's, it's not a huge factor. It's not a huge point of interest for the stories. No. At all. It's merely uh, an instrumental means to yeah. getting you places. There isn't... Especially with the Stephen Moffat era, being particularly concerned with the mechanics... Mm-hmm. of time and again Sid Mingley in the forthcoming second half of the season um, as well the whole Clara Roswin type what is she what time type thing is taking place there which I presume is the what's going on there because um, the first one which time seems to be a major thing to some extent would be the art would you oh, say? Yeah. Um, because he's, there's two episodes in a certain time period and then they go 2,000 years later. Yeah. Oh, the chase I'm ignoring because that's just a run around everywhere. Yes. That doesn't really count. Um, I guess there's um, also the time mentor where they meet uh, the monk is another time traveller. Yeah, but that's all in one time. Just yeah. mechanic, it's someone wanting to change and that kind of goes with the idea that you can't change one line of it. Which of course you can. Uh, the Aztecs <laughs> back into the time meddler. Um, you also have time in the master plan, but again, was it, do you do time? You do do t- different times in the master plan, but again, I think it's a similar jaunt around. Oh, don't you have something in the space museum with them jumping time tracks? Oh, it might have. Um, I haven't seen the space museum. Mm. But yeah, certainly most of the time the TARDIS is just there as a way of getting from A to B. Um, and there's no timey-wimey-ness in that sense. He only really gets control of it in Pertwee's area. Mm. Because in the early Pertwee, it was broken. And then it was um, deliberately controlled by the Time Lords. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Day of the Daleks is one of the ones yeah. that does play with the idea of time travel in terms of mechanics of it. Oh yeah, Which, as I pointed to Gary Russell a few years ago, they wouldn't do today because it's about terrorism. <laughs> oh, here we go. The savages are getting annoyed with each other. It is actually quite good that the Daleks did appear because. Even though the first episode is really good, <laughs> really good. If you thought this was going to be the rest of the, how the uh, mm. was going to play out, you probably wouldn't have carried on watching. 
for a particularly long period of time. This is probably the only time ever that William Russell actually gets his shirt and tie roughed up. He can have, like, in the Dark Invasion of Earth, he's running around in mines and stuff, and he's perfectly turned out. <laughs> you know, he's actually roughed up slightly. Because for his problems, it's a very earthy story. Hmm. It's not very clean, obviously, aesthetically, or in kind of mor- morally and how things hmm. work. It's a very kind of realistic, inverted commas, in a very obvious way. It's not, but in one sense, it is. Hmm. Of kind of how, in the way of human interaction, really, the, that kind of realism. Um, because again, I mean, the Doctor is. I know was it um, RCD said he took inspiration from the first season because he could put Eccleston and the William Hartnell's Doctor as being the most similar, at least in some respects. Yeah. Of certainly being the most spiky mm-hmm. uh, of the Doctors, um, being the and being the most obvious. Well, not the not clearly philanthropic. Mm. Character. Um. Yeah, I think the Doctor's more interesting when he isn't just the pure um, crusading hero. When he's got other motivations. Um. Tell me what happened after I fought the beast in the forest. You were stronger than the beast. He took away your axe in its head. You lay on the earth. I believed you were dead. Tell me what they did. The young man of that tribe came towards you. Teach them first aid. Yeah. I was just thinking as well, uh, I suppose it's Rory, isn't it? It's in the future. In in modern who the guy who he was going to kill, the doctor would have something on him which would make him better. Almost instantaneously, they would just jab him with some syringe or something. It had <laughs> some magic formula which would yeah, make him better instantaneously. Um, in a way, he's not nearly as technologically advanced. Um, the sonic screwdriver doesn't appear until Troughton. Yeah, Fury from the Deep. Yeah. So, despite being. It's always in like a retro sense. It's supposed to be futuristic, the TARDIS. It has all analogue dials. Mm. And, um. Yeah, you really see that in The Edge of Destruction. Um, Just. Of course, you have a bigger TARDIS set. Mm. Um, Oh, uh, apparently, one of the episodes for the second half of the series is called Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS. Ooh! Is that is that is that is that their uh, cheap episode? Because <laughs> it's reused the TARDIS corridors. I I I did watch what was it the um, invasion of time relatively mm. recently. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. That, that's really fun. I mean, it 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 doesn't quite work, and uh, some of it starts well, but then it gets ridiculous. Yeah, uh, some of it looks uh, really cheap and stuff. Uh, but there are some magnificent moments and images in it. Like, I really love just when you have the Doctor 
uh, comes in to find Perusa sitting on um, a bench by the swimming pool, reading the newspaper with the news of uh, the sinking of the Titanic, and he's in the Time Lord robes, and the Doctor just says to him guiltily, uh, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> And it is, um, and it plays a similar trick to um, the arc where you feel that you've got to the end of the story, and then it takes an unexpected twist, mm. like with that. Um, because each of the episodes were titled individually, you didn't know how long the story was going to be at this stage. So in the arc, when it's wrapped up in, at the end of episode two, it seems that they've finished and they go on to their next adventure it's then actually really surprising mm. uh, if you were watching it at the time that they arrived back at the same place um, uh, a thousand years later or however long it is um, and with the invasion of time it's nice that it's got that four part structure and then just when you think the doctors uh, saved the day against the Vardens the Sontarans turn up was this strange? Uh, similar one with that was the um, Hand of Fear. Mm. You've got three episodes which are, you know, the story, and then there's like a code of the fourth, uh, a fourth episode, which is quite an interesting way of working with the four part mm. uh, story. Line. But at this point, though, the story lengths were pretty much random. Mm. There was no set length. I'm going to this is four episodes. The, the dead planet, the mutants or the Daleks, depending on what you want to call it, is um, is seven episodes. Edge of Destruction is two episodes. Mm. Then, uh, then I think is, is the Aztecs. Was, was it Marco Polo? Marco Polo is seven. You have a few six episodes. You really are in a big mix of of episode lengths. Yeah. It the story lengths. And it only really gets vaguely regimented in Trouton. Um, it gets a bit more by the time standard. You, by the time you got to Tom Baker, it was a standard um, four parters and a six parter. Yeah, five fours and one. So you had the twenty six episode season. Yeah. Um, you did really after season nine onwards. You got pretty regular episode lengths, uh, story mm. lengths up until really. Um, so that's McCoy when you get three episodes then. Mm. But um, yes, because with um, uh, Colin Baker, they went to thirteen forty-five-minute uh, episodes, like the current sort of standard yeah. le- uh, length for his two forty-five-minute episodes and one. Sorry, and there's five two episodes and. One three, which was the two doctors, mm. um, which is interesting as well because you actually have the doctor killing a vaguely humanoid character in the two doctors <laughs> yeah. with chloroform. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> That's one weird phrase. It's fantastic. It's like, yes, get the doctor to kill people. It's brilliant. I just, I just love the counterpoint. Mm. <laughs> I just forgot on how kind of. Violent Colin Baker's doctor could be Robert Holmes is the writer as well for that matter. Yeah. 
uses quite a bit of percussion as well in the uh, soundtrack which they do quite well in um, Dark Invasion of Earth hmm. I think he had some um, xylophone earlier on as well um, I've read it before I can't remember who did the music for this but then I think a few stories and you get Dudley Simpson hmm. and Tristan Carey who did quite a, quite a few one of the th- things that's really effective in uh, the Dalek invasion is just the percussion as they run across abandoned London. Mm. Uh, that was Francis Chagrin. There's um, a real sense of um, fear and menace. It's very. They seem to. This, I think, they must have filmed. They did the films on film. Yeah, I think they could. separately because for some reason films seem to be easy to edit because they seem to do that with the um, action sequences because there's far more edits. Yeah, in, in this sequence, and there in is. the lighting's much. Just a flickering, flickering firelight. And the grain of it's different. You can always tell that with the um, when it's in location filming as well in the studio. Mm-hmm. The grain of the uh, of the image is completely different. Um, although they did. In the Aztecs, they did. I think it was all videotaped because I think because Ian has a very kind of theatrical fight sequence, mm. more theatrical than this because this is a lot more filmic than well, well it's not born, but <laughs> <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be pretty if you could try and re-edit if you had enough material or something to try to kind of re-edit some of the sequences to make it more contemporary in mm. a way would be quite. Interesting. Well, some of the DPT releases, um, I think they did for Enlightenment, they've done kind of um, different cuts for them. Uh, so it's um, edited to, to be in um, widescreen and to use new effects and just edited to move a bit quicker to a sort of movie edit type thing, which... Um, seems to me to be a bit odd, slightly pointless. I, I think the, the, the editing of things. I, I, I don't like the widescreen or because it wasn't filmed in widescreen. Yeah, and you're just and the effects lo- are stupid, and you're just losing um, image quality then by zooming in on. Yeah, but re-editing some things, I don't really have as much of an issue. That could be potentially interesting hmm. because. As we all know, a lot of Doctor Who stories could do to lose a bit of weight. Yeah. Because um, there is the fa- apparently the 85 minute version of Genesis of the Dark, which you haven't seen. <laughs> which would be interesting. Um, but it's a complete tangent. It's interesting with edits and things. Um, have, you seen, have you seen any film which was had a theatrical. A film which. Oh, maybe. Um, I watched The Wicker Man Fire Fire that, that works well with Wicker Man actually mm. Fire yeah. that. but um, I've watched the director's cut and the theatrical release and the theatrical release is actually better mm. uh, is much more to the point all the extra stuff in there there's basically one sequence I would keep in mm. uh, but it would be interesting obviously with copyright and stuff to for them to release material that and then see what 
anybody else would come up with in the editing room. Mm. Well, there's a purist edit of the Lord of the Rings trilogy oh, right. um, that some fans did to re-edit it to bring it back closer to the books and to take out um, extra stuff that Peter Jackson put in. Oh, right. Is it much shorter? I don't know exactly. I've not seen it, I just know of it. It'd be interesting to see if they do the same for The Hobbit as well, because that would be substantially shorter. (laughs) It'd be just interesting that what you can do differently with the um, with editing, especially, Mm. and um, different effect you have, and understanding why things were kept in and taken out, Mm. and that was just be the case of just make it longer put all the bits in and a bit wiser now because <laughs> I remember watching when I when I was younger I thought episode one of The Phantom Menace the Star was actually good oh um, dear I, I was like I, 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 I was um, young and naive I was naive I was had a very unrefined taste at that point <laughs> um, and I was watching the extras and I was like oh why didn't they give us a full edit of this why don't you just put these extra sequences in and uh, thinking back at it those sequences were rubbish and completely unnecessary <laughs> by most of the film um, but it's like hack it to death it, it was neat. Yeah, yeah I just think it would be interesting just to throw out a lot of material not all of it but then just see what people do with it mm. if, if different edits of things because when you see two edits of the same film or yeah. story it does get you thinking a lot more about what you keep in what you don't how you put it together meat on it is good Well, it looks like they're they having uh, marshmallows. They've got a bit of a open flame barbecue <laughs> with uh, unspecified meat. If it was Matt Smith, it would probably be tofu or corn. <laughs> well, it's at the end of the two doctors that the doctor says, um, uh, from now on, it's a strict vegetarian diet for the both of us. Your tribe and my it's interesting following that the heart the way Hartnell's era plays out. The whole family in space thing pretty much disappears when Ian and Bob Ian and Bob Ian and Bob you, you do get when Vicky comes in it's still basically the same mm. but when they leave in the end of the chase that's really heralding because you don't go back to that bigger TARDIS crew until Peter Davison yeah, because it's interesting that they um, generally um, <laughs> flaming skull. <laughs> Why has Moffat done that? He'd love a flaming skull. It's proper. Yes, with our flaming skulls. Yeah. <laughs> so you were saying with the... Um... Uh, yeah, it's interesting, because after Ian and Barbara leave, the format shifts to um, having um, a male and female companion. Mm. So you've got uh, Stephen and Vic. Yeah, Stephen and Vic originally, then Stephen and Dodo. Mm-hmm. Then you have um, Ben and Polly... Yeah. And then 
you bring in Jamie. We have well, they're, they're they're concurrent actually. Yeah. Up until they leave in the faceless ones, mm. and then it's Jamie. He's in. He's only his own. The Doctor. Um, well, and they pick up Victoria. It, they pick up Victoria. Yeah, in the next story. In so she's, Daleks, yeah. So she's the character in the story yeah. who joins them at the end. And then from two of the Cybermen on, and then you have Zoe, and then it's in the um, Doctor, uh, John Pertwee's era, that you get the modern formula mm. of um, the Doctor and the female companion. And they tried to go back to the older one with uh, Ian Martyr as uh, mm. Harry, but that he only survived season. Not literally, but he was only in season 12. Yeah. And did he appear briefly? He appears briefly in Terror of the Zygons, which is the start of 13, I think. Or does he, mm. or does he not? Or yeah, does he not that's where he leaves. Yeah. Then to gets the train back rather than the TARDIS. I think at that point the Doctor had become more of a physical mm. character and so they thought it didn't require uh, the um, yeah. escape capture, escape, capture escape with lots of percussion again As you probably already know, I, I'm quite partial to the old Doctor Who uh, incidental music and more modern <laughs> stuff. Um, I don't know. I suppose it is a bit 60s, some of it. Um, I haven't really watched enough television at the time to see to what extent Doctor Who was unique with it. Mm. But very much today it does seem it, like it is very sub-cinematic. Yeah. Well, that's slightly, slightly harsh on my goal, but um, it is very much in the, in the heavy-stringed orchestral tradition. Which is a cinematic one, really, from the kind of Hollywood era of, um, the classic Hollywood era of the 30s, 40s, and things in America. Like Corn Gold, who was in a famous early, um, film, um, music composers. Yes, it's better, yeah. Talk about the TARDIS. The, they didn't change the TARDIS console for about three years. Mm. It was no longer. It only changed with Pertwee. So it was after seven years. It was at the same time as the, the, the. I think the design changed inside, but the console unit stayed the yeah. same. I mean, there may be slight alterations to it throughout. Also, it's quite good. Note, we didn't note earlier is that they. Favreau said that basically the comedian circuit wasn't working. We didn't call it the comedian circuit. Mm. It didn't change. Yeah. Which again is quite good because it kind of shows the Doctor isn't. It's all a bit risky. Yeah. It's a little bit strange. Like he doesn't have entire control. It's not working as it should work. He's kind of getting around. And <laughs> thinking if you've been the companions, it's been intense being with Hartnell. You don't get any breaks off between stories. You literally go from where you are from the last time to <laughs> yeah. the next one. It's like, hmm, now into a, a radioactive planet. No surprise they got a bit stressed when they got to the edge of destruction. Ah, <laughs> um, oh, good old radiation again. Oh, it's fine. You know what's going to happen next? Ooh. 
danger on the radiation level. The radiation thing was a huge thing for Doctor Who. Point to definitely the seventies. Not really. Did it really re- re- come, come back in, in the eighties at all? The whole when did Chernobyl blow up? Yeah, so it didn't really impact it because it was still in the early 70s, kind of the whole radiation mm. radiation stuff, but it seemed to kind of get less of in the public consciousness in the late 70s and the 80s. They think 80s who's less engaged with contemporary trends. Oh, yeah, it, 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 it was the whole post Star Wars. Mm. Um, thing I mean that's but in the way he tried to be a bit more hard sci-fi to some extent especially Christopher H. Bidmead hmm. he's still writing in oh that's a bit I saw some guy on a train who had this computer magazine and um, it was the voice of experience column by Christopher <laughs> H. Bidmead <laughs> it, it was he like he did a very inter- entertaining interview with Doctor Who magazine a year or two ago and of uh, um saying why he wasn't impressed with the new series and stuff. <laughs> Burned all his bridges of any chance of uh, ever being invited to write for the new show if he had any chances. But, uh, yeah, it was... It, he was quite entertaining. I, I, I could see him not liking Stephen Moffat at all because Stephen Moffat really doesn't take... He's, he's interested in the mechanics of time travel but doesn't seem to take logical consistency of time travel particularly seriously <laughs> uh, which I could know to see Ryling's Chris Bidmeader mm. a lot um, oh, Norman Kay was, did the music for this one Okay, reminded myself oh and it was on the side mm. Mervyn Pinfield associate producer did the sounds I think he did made the kind of uh, the sound the humming kind of, no the, the pulsating sound for the um, Dalek ship. Oh, yeah. That, that was Mervyn Pinfield. I think he did some of the um, visual things as well, just noting because he was on the associate mm. producer list. It's interesting. I uh, finally got round to watching the last episode of Jekyll, which, because uh, I'd seen some of the series when it was on, but missed the end. Um, and I think that shows... Um, it, that's an example of Stephen Moffat, and he uses a lot of his favourite devices and tricks, like um, uh, at one point, um, uh, if, if this object isn't working, uh, then what is it that, then, uh, that's uh, making it work type thing uh, with a phone call and stuff, which is used in Doctor Who, like with, if the cock's not ticking, then what's ticking uh, with the Cockwork droids, and if um, the tape isn't running, then who's that saying? Where's my mummy? <laughs> and uh, so on. But also, I think it showcases, um, in terms of resolving stories, satisfactory longer-term storylines. Stephen Moffat doesn't. It seems to be something of a weakness for him because he can do uh, individual episodes really yeah. tightly plot it and do that well but uh, I've never been terribly taken with um, his overall plotting Mm. I think probably series 5 and 
the Big Bang is the one that works the best in terms of uh, resolving the storylines is set up. Uh-huh. Um, but, um, yeah, it's not, um, for all his claims to pay attention, if you do pay attention, it's like, um, my problem isn't that I'm not paying attention and not getting it. It's that I am paying attention. I think I get it and I don't think it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. I, I do enjoy his stories, but the logical consistency sometimes leaves something to be desired. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, um, just looking back, Hartnell, uh, was, uh, really great as that, um, original doctor and just set the stage for everyone else. And although it's obviously, uh, evolved from that, everyone's been playing in, uh, the, Space that he set up, as it oh, yeah. were. And yeah, the, the whole settlement, the first episode of the concept, and yeah, incredibly, in a way, very flexible format. Mm. Uh, and the later editions, he does set it very well, and um, and not doing it now, but I mean, it does pay to watch. I mean, some of the stuff isn't perfect by any means, but it is some of the more most innovative. Uh, time in Doctor Who's. If you if you look at the contrasted types of story, Hartnell has the most contrasting of stories mm. and being and character uh, roles and things. Um, it is. It's very doing, very yeah. It's very mixed up. Um, whereas later on, it becomes very much in a certain certain way of doing things. Yeah, the you develop more of a house style. Yeah. Um, so even if, if it isn't, isn't perfectly successful, then it's certainly interesting. I mean, was it John? Oh, hang on, John Wiles, wasn't it? Who was producer in the third season? Somebody you think produced the master plan? He wanted he wanted the Tardis to meet God <laughs> at one point. He, <laughs> that would have been interesting. He was um, he was really up for the like the highest concept stories, but I think he, he was like in the Ark and things. He was really trying to push it. Mm. Um, he didn't last long uh, <laughs> as, as producer. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, and especially the season three is in and around everywhere mm. with things. Well, here's here's to Hartnell and to Classic Who. Indeed, uh, thank you very much for listening. Let let us know what. Uh, your thoughts are um, are you a fan of the first Doctor's era what are your favourite stories um, yeah just uh, join in the conversation and let us know what you think and we'll be back to commentate on a second Doctor adventure in a few weeks so keep listening thanks very much Bye. You've been listening to The Impossible Podcast. For more Doctor Who commentaries, plus other science fiction and fantasy reviews and discussions, please visit our website, impossiblepodcasts.com, or search for us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or email us via impossiblepodcasts at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.